1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple
0: fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Pete Kunze. My guest today is Sabrina Mittermeier the editor of Fan Phenomena, Disney. The book was published by Intellect Books in 2022. Hi, Sabrina, how are you today?
1: I'm good, how are you?
0: I'm hanging in there. I'm glad for the <laughs> opportunity to talk to you about this, uh, this exciting new volume. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your own background and training?
1: Yes, um, so I have a PhD in American cultural history from the University uh, the Ludwig, Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, Germany. Um, I So most of my work comes from American studies, but since American studies is very interdisciplinary anyway, what that means to me is I do cultural history, but cultural studies sort of a wild mixture <laughs> of all of these things. So whatever interests me and I've been focusing basically all of my career if you want to call it that on popular culture and coming at it from sort of different angles.
0: And in particular, obviously, in this volume, you're interested in fan practices and fandom. So what drew you to that?
1: I guess the so I wrote my dissertation, which is now a monograph on the cultural history of Disneyland. And the hurdle you always come across is that you have no clue what to do with like audiences, like the visitors of the theme parks. They're notoriously hard to study because to really study them, what you would have to do is like big surveys or, you know, that kind of studies that are basically impossible to do as one person you can never grasp them but I think fan studies has um you know found ways to sort of work around that kind of methodology to study fans or study audiences and so with Disney that it was so clear that that's such a big part of what makes Disney Disney and and so it was kind of surprising that there wasn't more work on Disney fans yet and I mean that's It's sort of now is the moment when a lot of work in Disney generally, but also Disney fans is coming out. So it feels like a pretty good moment to do this. Um, And it should have been done much earlier, but this is where we are, so.
0: Well, I'd love for you to develop that a bit further. What do you see fandom studies doing for Disney studies? What do you see as maybe um, a gap in previous Disney scholarship or um, let's say a misunderstanding among or incompleteness in earlier Disney scholarship that fan studies really helps to complicate and enrich.
1: I think Disney studies is sort of notorious for like early Disney studies. I'm talking like 80s, 90s, is notorious for kind of, you know, talking about it as this like, cultural imperialist empire. And I mean, they're not wrong about the Walt Disney Company being <laughs> a cultural imperialist and playing a role in that, but I think it's sort of reductive towards, you know, looking at, um, especially casting, you know, the fans or, or even like casual viewers or visitors of the parks um, or the films as, you know, sort of dupes that fall for like being brainwashed by um, the industry, by particularly Disney, um, so I think fan studies kind of brings more nuance to all of this because a lot of fans are very active and I like in, in how they engage with texts. Um, I think this is, I mean, this is what fan studies is based on studying. A lot of the, the direct engagement fans have with texts. That means they often produce their own, art in some ways where they engage they can be engaging very critically with the text they're receiving. I think this is a nuance that that nobody in early Disney studies was actually looking at. Um so I think it just just you know highlights how much more complex all of this really is. I mean that goes for all of pop culture but for whatever reason Disney was always sort of the bogeyman <laughs> as the, you know in the culture industry.
0: Probably because it went after went after well it addresses children right and we have yeah. to protect the children so these presumptions yeah, sure. of the dangers. And, and then all
1: the like never dying rumors about Walt Disney being like a red fascist <laughs> being an anti-semite being you know whatever he was I'm not saying he was perfect he was definitely a racist so many studio executives were and are like that's not news but I think it's also a reductive viewing of a very complicated person and a complicated company so
0: yeah, and one of the things I think this volume does is think about with these histories of imperialism, racism, sexism, homophobia in Disney culture, the ways that fans from those communities have nevertheless engaged in very active and nuanced ways with the content. Um, and I think that that's something that a lot of the readers will benefit from in reading your your volume. Um, I wanted to now invert that question. What do you see? focus on Disney doing for fandom studies what does studying Disney in particular allow fan scholars to ask research and understand better
1: I think especially sort of that weird moment of like this is this has been the company is so notoriously like conservative in so many of its outlooks and yet So many of the fans of it, very active, very engaged fans of it are queer, for instance, like that's a cliche at this point, but it's also very true, like the stereotypical, especially white gay male um, Disney fan, but it's also a lot of people of color like that are, you know, big, big, big fans of the company. And they still, you know, know, obviously about all the problems with racism, they know about the problems with homophobia. Um, And I think especially in the last few years, there's been a lot of critical engagement and, and also discussion, I think, between fans and the company, because we're now at a point with like, I mean, it's such a trite argument, but like with social media, with the way people engage with the industry more directly that they had, like the company has also started to listen to fans or at least try to gauge better what like fans like and what they don't like um and and that's also something that the book at least tries to pick up on um in some of the chapters
0: yeah that was something that struck me and it was actually my next question i think you kind of hit upon it but i um in uh i I dabble in literary studies still and i find that the uh, people who are interested in fandom literature sometimes go back to jenkins but of course jenkins Mm. is one of the foundational figures in fan studies and the field has evolved in many ways since textual poachers, you know, with and against Jenkins's ideas. Right. Um, and so I think that was something that came through nicely in your volume was this kind of sense of where is fan studies out today? Um, not only in terms of diversity, but in kind of complicating this notion of the fan as kind of a liberator- liberatory position or as a resistant position, right. Thinking through, um the, the complicated interchanges that take place between industry and individuals
1: yeah and i think there's a an interesting aspect with disney now too that there's um and i mean it's not just disney but like this this idea of anti-fandom and this idea of like fans aren't just like the resistance figures either there's also like a lot of right-wing conservative backlash against like this is the 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 weird thing that there's like all these liberal or progressive or whatever you want to call them uh disney fans that try to push the company towards the left and like improve representation and then there's like a whole bunch of disney fans who are like right-wing conservatives or worse like you know outright alt-right you know figures um and there's that weird point of tension that i think is also not unique to Disney, but it's where a lot of discussion around these topics has taken place because of like, you know, mostly recent events, like don't say gay and that whole debate that Disney was directly involved in because of where they are in Florida and, and you know, and then also beyond that with their filmic output and so on and so forth. So um, I think it's just, yeah, it's it's a really good moment to think about all of these things with this company.
0: Yeah, one of the things I learned in reading your book is that inclusion has been um, added as a Disney value in recent years. Um, And from a political perspective, of course, that's exciting for those of us who want a more progressive, inclusive, diverse culture and society. But of course, it's also a, a business practice for Disney, right? It's about making sure that not only people, but customers don't feel excluded. So, can you talk a little bit more about um, inclusion's role in contemporary Disney and other factors that you see inflecting contemporary fan practices with Disney?
1: Yeah, I think so. Inclusion, as you already said, is a company practice. I think it was about time that they made it that. It's also not like a coincidental moment because they did this after like Black Lives Matter. I mean Black Lives matter has a longer history but like that sort of boiling point in 2020 um and i think it's yeah it's it's become such an established business practice to say oh we're inclusive, we're diverse like for all kinds of fortune 500 companies um and it makes sense for Disney to obviously jump on that and say we do this. I mean, for their for their own employees' sakes, to be honest too, because I mean there's also been pushback from employees to some of the the stuff with don't say gay and other stuff that the company has been doing. Um but also in in terms of fandom. Um and I think it's they always try to walk such a fine line <laughs> between like not offending anyone and always being, you know, appealing to everyone, which is always, you know, a like it It's impossible to appeal to everyone, and I think that's always what the company's trying to do and you I think you can see that in in fan engagement um in so many ways and like what we can do with fan studies with that i think is sort of push the you know push the the holes in that logic of like we're gonna appeal to everyone um because you won't appease everyone all the time and um sometimes when they try to actually make things worse or they like kind of stagnate um i mean i don't know if this is going too far off track right now but i think what's also interesting is like we're doing this book between 2020 and now and like a lot of the stuff that's been happening happened with bob jpeg as the ceo who's also been I mean, maybe perhaps unrightfully so, but like, you know, every everything that's gone wrong with Disney has been put on him, but now Bob Iger is back. And I think there's so much happening internally with the company that some of this stuff we're probably addressing in this work is already maybe shifting again, or is in flux certainly. And I think there's also an interesting tension, like to look at it from like an industry point of view or like industry studies point of view of like what, What are the shifts within a company based on who the ceo is and what their stance even personal stance is on issues like inclusion and diversity particularly on don't say gay Iger and jpeg did fundamentally not agree for instance so what does this do um and i think those are all things like how will they engage with fans i think the two of them have very different ways of engaging with fans um so i think that's also something to not lose track of, um, and maybe not something that's, that's necessarily part of fan studies all that much, not to be too critical of co- colleagues. I think there's, like, there's such a wide variety of people who do fan studies. They don't wanna um, place judgment where, is, where that's not necessary.
0: I mean, it's clearly something that's changing quite a bit, right, when we I think, think so. about someone like Iger, who at one point, I believe, was considering a run on the democratic ticket yeah, president. I think he's right? still
1: going to do that. To be honest, like his yeah. current tenure with the company will run out in uh, what is it? I think twenty twenty four. I think he's back now for two years. Um, I'm not surprised if that happens to be when he decides to run for president. I mean, so many things will change, but he's been talking about this for way too long.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating intersection of uh, government politics, corporate businesses, yeah. and um, well, I guess corporate business is redundant, but corporations and culture, right? And, and yeah. the fans are, are right at the center of it. And in some ways, uh, Chapek was reticent, if not um, inert, about questions of social justice in ways that Iger seems to have been much more open um, it, it, dare I say even liberal um some of the ways I've heard him talk about it although there's always that reminder of like well he's speaking as a businessman who realizes (laughs) he's
1: speaking commercial value yeah yeah yeah. Uh, the
0: commercial value of doing of being more inclusive I think
1: that's also like some of the where some of the nuance has to come with all of this is because just like fans are very nuanced sometimes in how they feel something like I love something to pieces and still see its flaws someone like Iger is still a person who has his own personal political beliefs and is apparently a democrat a lifelong democrat he comes from you know he comes from more liberal circles and that probably won't and I'd ever change whereas JPEG is a lifelong republican and comes from like Silicon Valley so it, Mm -hmm. it you know like all of these things matter in the end at the end of the day so um yeah just ignoring that that part of the company uh, is is you know as flawed as ignoring the fans of the company and all of this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's one of the problems Disney studies have had is that it's been very myopic, um, and something like fan studies can just you know break that open.
0: Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, too, about the, the Disney adult, which was a term that seemed to circulate quite a bit in the discourse last year. And uh, I feel like I, I can't let you escape an interview without us examining the Disney adult. I mean, why do you think the Disney adult is so vexing for non-Disney fans?
1: The good thing is several media outlets have asked me the same question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um I think so. I think the term is interesting because it hadn't been quite, like, at least to me, and I mean, I'm online all the time, like, I'm I'm, I'm painfully online. Um, and I, I didn't see it used as much before, I think, even 2021, maybe 2020 is when it started to come up. And so my thesis about this has been that it became sort of a term... Like, you know, the the idea the Disney adult is always means it's someone who's completely obsessed with Disney, is completely uncritical of it and is embarrassing themselves because they as an adult like things that are quote unquote for kids or they like them to an obsessive degree, especially also the parks, that they're also annoying even to some of the other fans, right? So it's this like extreme version of Disney fandom that goes to the nth degree and then it exploded with this like I think Emma the asshole Reddit post, you know, where people put their, like, you know, usually social situations, often relationship situations, asking people if they're the asshole, and they usually are. Um, And it was about a couple who had a Disney wedding, and because it's so expensive, they didn't provide food for their guests, but instead spent the money on having Mickey and Minnie Mouse appear as characters in the ceremony. I don't know if it's been debunked now because it also sounded like a made-up thing because I think how Disney weddings work is you buy a certain package and it would be completely weird for there to not be food, you know what I mean? Um, So I don't know, but this is how this got big and then suddenly a lot of media outlets latched onto it and there was a bigger discussion of Disney adults. But my thesis was like, why did this become such a thing aside if this Reddit post even was that I think in 2020, when the parks had shut down because of the pandemic and then reopened very quickly, at least in Florida, because it was possible there, I think people kept obviously going um, back to the parks and I think that also drew a lot of like ire from other people of like, how can you still go to the parks when this pandemic is spreading, when this virus is killing people. And also, how can you go to the parks when a company has just let off thousands and thousands and thousands of cast members um, and is treating them badly? I think the people really like saw again that Disney is a company and they let go people and they have a lot of seasonal workers that they underpay. And I think there was a focal point. And yet there were so many Adam and Disney fans who were still going and still pretending none of this was happening, I think. Um, and I think this is where all the criticism comes from, um, and rightfully so. Um, but um, yeah, so the Disney adult, I think, is like the most extreme version of Disney fan. And there's some people that should be rightfully criticized because a lot of the Disney adults, like, I think that's what mostly is meant by them, like that example of the Disney wedding, whether it happened or not, is that idea of like, these are clearly very privileged people, usually with a lot of money, usually white who have a lot of spare money to spend on like Disney merchandise and stuff like this. And are just incredibly entitled. And this is also why they usually annoy other fans. Um, we don't have a chapter on the Disney adult and the volume, I think that's that because that wave of like discussing that term happened after we were already like going to print or like around that moment where we were already in final stages of editing. But yeah, I think that's gonna be I'm I'm not like I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of like fan studies articles come out in the next couple years to deal with the Disney adult as a term.
0: Sure, and I believe that's something you say in your introduction, right? Like this is, maybe, this is an imbi- imitation. Yeah, this is an invitation to a conversation. It's not the end of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a uh, a dissertation advisor kind of question for you, <laughs> um, but I think it might benefit some of our listeners who are early career scholars. How do we study disney fandom um like what are some of the methods that were employed in this book and what kinds of approaches did you find the contributors wanting to take and uh, employing in their studies
1: i think some of the most obvious ways of studying fans which is also why it's happening the way it's happening is that uh, a lot of fandom happens online um so, especially when it comes to studying like fan art or fan fiction, I mean that's all online. That's all freely accessible to everyone who has access to the internet. Um, so, like you can go on Tumblr, you can go uh, on you know archive of our own and just you know see people's work and directly see fa- fan engagement. Um, and yeah, I mean the study of fan fiction is, I think, where mostly all started like because fan fiction was published obviously even long before the internet and fanzines Um, and i mean that's still one of the most common ways of doing fan studies is studying fan fiction and and trying to make sense of what kind of fan fiction is being written and why and how and and so on um, same with that of fan art, especially when it comes to diversity. That's often sometimes you know one of the the most interesting ways of looking at race, for instance, because this was like race bending in art, and what does that mean, and what does it mean when white people do, and so on and so forth. Um, and then obviously social media engagement, I think, uh, is a big factor in, in how people study all of this. Um, and especially also with like anti-fandom stuff because you know, <laughs> go into the comment section, like go on Twitter or go into the comment section of articles and you will have it all there. Um, and I mean, I think what's was kind of missing and not just some Disney fan studies, one one thing that that is not done enough yet is going into archives for that kind of thing. I do know a lot of people who study early fandom for, for things like Star Trek and so on and so forth. And I think that might also happen with Disney at some point, or we should try to make that happen with Disney because actually fan production of Disney stuff might be more easily accessible than the actual Disney stuff. (laughs) As every Disney scholar knows that has tried to find Disney archival resources Um, because I mean, Disney fandom has existed as long as the company has existed, which is a whole uh, hundred years now. So um, that's that but I think, I think the fact that so much of the fandom happens online and is easily accessible to everyone makes it also a cool thing for people who do undergrad thesis and so on and so forth, because they don't need to have, um, you know, fancy archival access or get travel money for it.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of ways into, into these questions. And I think one of the things that comes through in your, in your book is you kind of offer us these three sections and an interlude that think about kind of... Um, not only facets of Disney fandom, but uh, questions that one might pursue. And in the first section, you're examining, um, you and your co-contributors are examining uh, diversity in the Disney princess. So um, can you give us kind of an overview of that kind of conversation in Disney studies and some of the questions and concerns that come up in thinking about the Disney princesses in particular?
1: I think the Disney princess is probably the most studied aspect of Disney, at least from a like cultural media studies point of view um, or gender studies, quite obviously. Um, That's, that's at least the stuff that I've seen, like, like my first big international conference was PCA in 2016. And I remember like there were like surprising amount of people doing other stuff in Disney too, but like the Disney princess on these conference programs even now is something that you see a lot. So I think that doesn't mean that it's been studied to death. I think there's a lot still to be said about it, also because there's more movies coming out, right? Or um, Disney has rebranded as a franchise quite a while ago, and so this is, there's always new things to say about it. Um, but I think with in the in in this book now, I think there's that's where we are with Disney Princess studies. There's like engagement with issues of race. There's engagement with Uh, issues of, as I mentioned, like race bending and fan art, for instance, what does that mean? Um, Also things from the parks come into play because the Disney princesses are obviously also characters you can meet in the parks. Um, And uh, so it's, I think we've moved to that sort of aspect of Disney princesses. Um, And there's also like other engagement with it as a a veritable franchise and how it uh, is marketed to um women of all ages or like marketed to mothers and daughters for instance so these are the kind of questions that i think are still very pertinent and um that's why they're in the book
0: yeah i think uh i believe i read an article a few years ago in forbes that said the disney princesses as a franchise are actually out earning star wars Mm -hmm. and marvel even though we think of them as um maybe more visible or more profitable or more popular, it's 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 still young children who want the Disney princess sheets and t-shirts and backpacks and are going to see the movies that are are spending far more money than um, the Marvel
1: fans. Yeah, and I think the misconception also is, oh, the Star Wars and the Marvel is for the boys and the Disney princess is for the girls. And I mean, outside of the gender binary being a problem, it's also a problem to think of it like that because there's so many female star Wars and marvel fans but there's also a bunch of boys who like disney princesses and um i think frozen has sh- shown that um quite clearly as well
0: well as uh as someone of the generation that aladdin was targeting i can uh I can attest that I was more of a Beauty and the Beast fan, but uh, <laughs> we'll save that for another podcast. Um, so then you offer an interlude on representation, censorship and Disney Plus featuring your own contribution. Can you tell us more about um, these this side of the business studies?
1: Um, so yeah, so my own contribution deals with exactly that problem of like, what do we do as queer people who like Disney <laughs> when the company doesn't always like us back? <laughs> Or is, has a very complicated relationship with us. Um I mean, that's mostly in there because that's the thing I wanted to say at that moment in time. Um, and it's it's very short. <laughs> but um I think that's that that was just sort of like this is what what we're discussing most adamantly now. It was also at the height of the don't take a debate when I wrote this. Um But I think that that's, that's one of the most clear points of like, we need to, you know, for conversation in the future, like this is where I want more people to do research on and I know people are doing research on it right now the issue of Disney and queer representation and queer fandom. not that that's entirely new, there is already a great book by Sean Griffin as well, but I mean, it's so many many years old. So I think this is always the thing with like, oh, it's not been done because Disney is constantly changing and constantly evolving. So you can write an article on this every five years and you will have so many more things to say. (laughs) Um, And the other uh, chapter that's in that section actually deals with Hamilton, the musical, And Disney because it's obviously like the the live recording of it was put on Disney plus um, and and has to do with a longer uh, work relationship between then Mario Miranda Disney. Um, And so it mostly deals with things like what happens when this goes on Disney there's like two cases of the effort being cut from the broadcast things like that so it was just a really interesting. sort of little outlook into like what do these kind of business relationships actually do. Um, to Disney and how to expand Disney um, as, well as how we think of Disney and I think you think Disney when you're Hamilton but at the same time it actually doesn't so you can consume that now unless you can go to a live um, performance of it
0: Yeah. Uh, if we could return to to your piece for a second, I was yeah. thinking as I was reading it, you you have this kind of great call out of this kind of publicity of the first gay representation, oh, yeah. right? And how it kind of comes up in, in Marvel or it comes up in Pixar. Um, and yet, you know, for folks who know Sean Griffin's work or um, for other queer fans, right, they probably raised an eyebrow when LeFou was called the first gay representation because you know, uh, because of perception practices, we see something like, you know, what Ursula meant um, to many young queer viewers or, um, you know, these kinds of relationships that young girls may have had with the Disney princesses that were not necessarily authentication, but may have been more amorous, right? Um, so it, this notion of intention versus consumption becomes complicated, right? Because there were a series of pieces in the media where, uh, queer viewers are saying like we've always seen this as queer um and in fact when you do the history you see that there were queer creators behind the scenes who were bringing kind of camp aesthetic or um maybe in jokes that would kind of um intentionally and unintentionally kind of sing- signal to those viewers uh, what these these um texts meant or how they could be read
1: yeah for sure and i think like this is also part of like what my second monograph is going to be in like five plus years time but like that engagement with you know queer coding and the practice of queer coding that obviously uh, originates with like the years of the haze code and you know outright censorship of like when you couldn't do explicit queer content because you couldn't get it past the censors you had to find other ways to put things in that were then part of the movie and like you know Vito Rosso's Work on this, like the cellular closet, where he kind of unearthed things that are essentially queer-coded texts, mm. um, and and that kind of constant tension. Um, also, like there's so many people who are like adamant about like it has to be explicit queer representation for this to matter, and I agree with it to a certain degree because obviously, in, in terms of industry practices, yes, because. Um, you know it does actually sell and people need to understand it sells and it's the only way you're ever going to change any of these studios to, to make this and then also then maybe cast queer actors and so on and so forth but on the other hand there's a great book by melanie cone and where she argues oh you know but queer coding still has value like there's still nuances to things and that still matters like it doesn't mean that it's you know just bad like the queer coding in Disney as you said like sort of infamous it's a lot of villains and everyone is like oh of course the villains are gay coded or queer coded and it's like yes but because the animator was gay you know like if, what does that do like does it make that automatically bad because someone was trying to you know impart something of his own into the work and there's obviously you you're the expert on that but like Howard Ashman um, writing so much stuff that's sort of infused with queer sensibility for mostly female characters, um, and, and you know what does that do? So. Um, I think that's the you know all of these concepts and there's the obviously the opposite concept of like queer baiting when then companies realize oh it sells but we still don't want to give it to you, <laughs> which is what which is where you end up with like Disney's first gay character because they have sold the first gay character about 10 times now, um, without ever <laughs> actually contributing doing anything meaningful with it necessarily I think. Um, I like LeFou in the life action, but like he was already gay before we knew, like we didn't, did we, we need to confirm it? I like to see it confirmed, but at the same time, like it's not super integral to the story either. And I think, um, I haven't seen, what is it? Like Strange New Worlds, I'm saying that mm-hmm. the Star Trek show instead, but like the, the new Disney film that they didn't market and it's now very successful. in Disney plus apparently as a gay character, that's much more fleshed out and, and sort of integral to the story um and so yeah i think that's that's also going to be interesting um how that's kind of developed down the line where the, the lesbian character in, in light year that um was cut before <laughs> pixar employees were like they cut that mm-hmm. they made us cut that um and i think that's a very really interesting discussion too about like artists and, and and companies really
0: in the next section of uh the volume, you move into talking about the theme parks, which is an area that you have studied at great length and made significant contributions to. Um, And of course, the theme parks are not just Disney World and Disneyland, but, you know, there are hosts in in France and in Japan and, um, and two in China, well Hong Kong and uh, in Shanghai, right? Um, how does this enrich our understanding of, of Disney fans to move not just to consider not only the relationship with let's say traditional legacy media texts but to consider the theme parks although of course I think we can argue the theme parks and media too. Yeah um,
1: I think for me and obviously that's my bias but I think the theme parks are some of the most interesting sites when it comes to fandom, because it's constant engagement um, with these parks and, and, and constant you know, engagement with company practices. Like there's a price hike or there's a change to uh, how you can park hop. So go between the parks when you have a certain ticket or you know, it's and, and every little decision that the company makes is debated on social media every day, (laughs) and I don't think that happens to that like small degree with the films. Like, it's just, you know, it's because people feel very close to these spaces. A lot of the people who live close to any of the parks, you know, they're usually annual pass holders. They sometimes go there multiple times a week. Um, And then obviously through that, they also engage with the films because the films have representations in the parks through rides or parades or shows or whatever, or character meets. Um, but I think it's such a rich area of fan studies because of that, because it's just, you know, this constant engagement. Um, and and this is also where I think the company has to listen much more closely to its customers, because with films, you know, you make a film several years, you put it out, you get a box office, you maybe now put it on streaming. So have like I think streaming, I don't know if that makes it easier for them to measure, obviously, Yes, but I think that's also sort of obfuscated in so many ways, like, what is the success of it's on streaming? How do I know if it's just a kid watching the same film over and over and over again? You know, all of these things. But I think with the parks, they very clearly get feedback immediately. And they've had Mm. to walk back some things because it was so unpopular. The, The Walt Disney Company just put out two massive shows in Walt Disney World, like one of the nighttime spectaculars two years ago. And Replace them again with the shows they had before because they were so unpopular. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't think you see that happen because once a film is done, it's done. Um, Which ironic is also what Walt Disney liked about the parts that he could always mess with them and do changes. Um, And, but I think it's the same for the fans. Um, Yeah,
0: Yeah, I I was thinking as I was reading that section and and learning more about things like Disney bounding, right? You know, on the one hand, Disney has this investment in inclusion. Um, On the other hand, the parks are expensive, you know, as a working class kid growing up in the United States, like our family did the pilgrimage to Disney World once. um, And I got the impression at the time that my parents kind of felt like we have to do this to be good, you know, good parents to take our kids to Disney World. And like, in some ways we were kind of over it because I think I was already 12 or 13. Um, and, you know, it was really, really expensive. And, you know, when I was reading the scholarship on theme parks, you know, part of the argument that gets made, as you know, is, you know, when you pay or set a price on those theme parks, and of course, the the price of the theme parks famously jumped in the 80s and the 90s compared to where it had been proportionally before. um, It's not just about letting people in, it's also about keeping people out. So this is a very long way of me asking, how does the theme parks kind of, stage this notion of who gets to be a Disney fan and the appropriate ways of being a Disney fan.
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of the core question, um, which is also why, why it became a core question for my first monograph um, about like class being a central factor in access to Disney parks from the beginning actually even though you're right like the the sort of you know who can afford to go definitely changed over the 80s and 90s which also has to do with how this u.s society or the global financial market changed Mm -hmm. um but um it's i think yeah it they stage so much of it as inclusion and letting people in and obviously the the the, the body of people who go to the parks has diversified uh, because the American middle and upper class has diversified in terms of race or in terms of sexuality and gender. Um, but on on the other hand, like as you said, like some people can maybe afford to go once in their lives, um, but the people who go all the time they have money, and mm-hmm. uh, that's just something that's sort of you know brushed aside. I think Disney knows but they would, they're still trying to sell it as a, they're sometimes still trying to sell it as an everyman experience, although I would also argue that I've stepped away from that. They don't even care that much anymore. They've started to cater a lot more obviously to to a VIP crowd as well, but also to to people who can afford things. Um, and obviously when you take that to other countries that vary slightly, but on the, on the whole, there are like, those are expensive vacations. And for many people, it's a once in a lifetime thing. And some of the international parks, maybe you go for a day, but that's still expensive. Um, it's a bit easier, I think, than for instance, Florida, of course. Um, but yeah, it's, it's become sort of a boutique experience in so many ways. And I think this is also the audience the company caters to. Um, so when they talk about inclusion, that's usually a factor that they don't wanna talk about.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and as we move into the final section of the book um the focus shifts to um how fan labor gets monetized by the company um and if i remember correctly the whole disney princesses phenomenon as a as a franchise and the company is fairly recent right it, it only happens about 15 years ago um and i think Andy Mooney, who was responsible for it, says that he was at some kind of Disney event. Maybe he was at the parks and he saw little girls in makeshift princess costumes. And he was like, Why aren't we producing princess costumes? Right. And it's like the company sees what young, young girls are doing and it shapes business practices, right? It shapes like we should be catering to what fans are doing on their own. Catering being a nice way of saying, you know, exploiting, formalizing, monetizing. So um this is a another long way of asking what do you mean by fan labor for those who aren't in fan studies um and how has disney in recent times been engaging with fan labor and even exploiting fan labor
1: yeah i think fan labor for me encompasses everything that you know fans produce um and they obviously produce that for their own joy or for their friends and other fans joy um but you know, that's fan fiction, as I said, that's fan art. That's also cosplay. Um, So a lot of people make their own costumes. Um, Some people even make their own toys, you know, like customized Funkos, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I think, yeah, there's a lot of labor actually happening from fans, fan videos, all of this stuff. And um obviously yeah, the, the company starts to notice and not just Disney, but like Disney also especially starts to notice things like you said, like, oh, you know, um apparently people like to dress up as characters. Why are we not selling them the costumes to do so and maybe not just for Halloween? um so yeah they started selling disney princess dresses in the parks but also with disney bounding which you know is a form of disney specific cosplay because the parks have a policy that as an adult you're not allowed to dress up in full costume when you're in the park but so you won't get confused with you know the actual disney characters Mm -hmm. um and And that's been sort of interesting how the company has also started to circumvent their own rules to monetize on on people obviously wanting to do that. So if you go to a Disney Parks Halloween party, you're allowed to dress up, (laughs) even though there's also tons of characters in the parks. Um, Or now with like Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, the company is selling fairly high-end cosplay to you. Like they're selling really cool, like Star Wars costumes and props to you, but then you're not allowed to wear them in the parks. And I've been waiting for them to kind of loosen this rule with the things they're actually putting out because it's kind of silly. This is where you want to wear them. You want to wear your costume in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and then take pictures and put them on social media. so I don't know what's going to happen with that. and um, But also they've opened this like, inks crazy expensive boutique experience hotel of the Galactic Star Cruiser, where I think they're trying to do this for like people who can't afford to, for several thousand uh, dollars a day or night. You can do a full on role-playing experience in the Galactic Star Cruiser. And I'm pretty sure most people buy the costumes before they do this, if they don't already have cosplay. Um, and and yeah disney bounding exists because you then like this is is to circumvent the rule as well that just means you sort of dress in like normal quote-unquote street clothes but that sort of have like the color scheme of a specific character Mm. um and and people do this and um yeah and i think and and disney knows about this now so they're now selling merchandise that's specifically geared at disney bounders, so they know that Um, And this is sort of the process of all of these things keep happening. You know, like fans do something, they produce their own stuff for it or maybe third-party companies are starting to produce stuff and are starting to make money. And then Disney is like, wait, why are we not doing this? And sometimes they're quite good at it and sometimes they suck. (laughs) Sometimes they put out (laughs) horrendous merchandise that, you know, if they had ever talked to fans about it we would have told them this doesn't work. Um, and I think they need to actually almost get better at that. I think they need to start hiring more people who were first adamant fans. I think they would actually make a lot more money if they did that, but we'll see.
0: Yeah. And and this whole idea of posting on social media, right? speaks yeah. to the way that fans become uncompensated promoters, right? Yeah. Um, and I think this comes through nicely in the interviews you included with actual disney fan influencers or prominent disney fans can you can you talk about the decision to include that and what you feel that adds to the volume
1: so it you know the decision to include it basically comes from the fact that the book series this is a part of does this a lot so they do um they do usually like highlight fan practitioners um in the series so i was like that makes sense and so the people i chose to interview also it was very you know I, I wanted to interview people that weren't just white, heterosexual, cis, cisgender people, like a lot of blonde women do a lot of Disney influencing, like that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't the, you know, target demographic that I thought had interesting things to say about what it's like to be a Disney fan right now. Um, and so I interviewed uh, Victoria Wade, who's a black, queer young Disney influencer, um, and she does a lot of cosplay. She does a lot of Disney bounding. She's also worked for the parks before that. So a lot of people who end up being Disney influencers fancy CMs, so cast members of the past. Um, so I think there's a, like a multitude of, you know, different perspectives and obviously also the racism you endure as a person of color that's a Disney influencer um, and how that differs, you know, um, from a white person doing this and um, So I think it's it's just interesting perspectives from people who are also not, like, you know, also academics. I mean, I think most of the, the, the scholars who wrote for this volume would also call themselves Disney fans. But then we already have that filter built in of like, this is how I see this now through this lens of having done fan studies or cultural studies or whatever for a long time. Um, but if you talk to someone who's an influencer who also doesn't write scholarly articles on their own practice, I think that's a different point of view, just clearly. Um, and so yeah, it was a way of like engaging with important issues like systemic racism and the fandom, but also uh, a way of just getting a different perspective.
0: Excellent, excellent. Um, as we head into the home stretch, I wanted to ask you, what do you see as the future? For futures of Disney fan studies? What, what kind of work do you see coming out of this volume? What kind of work would you like to see that um, you're not seeing yet or not seeing enough of?
1: Yeah, as I said, uh, more engagement, I think, with queer fans and, and sort of the complicated relationship because what's there is is good, but it's like, there's so much stuff happening. But I also know that there's stuff coming out on this. So that's that's sort of a spoiler. I know people are working on, <laughs> on that topic. But um, I think also there's been a lot more engagement with Disney parks in the last few years. And I see a lot more of that happening. I mean, the people who contributed to this volume keep writing their own books and keep publishing articles on it. So I know this will, there will be more of this, but I also people who aren't in the book do this right now because it's again it's such a rich area of fan studies and it's so underexplored still and there's so much you can write about um so very much expect that um the other thing as i said would love to see is more like historical engagement with disney fandom and people who try to dig into the archives and i don't know write on um all the mickey mouse merchandise from the 30s and how fan engagement with that worked or right? i mean i think that one of the only things i know that does this kind of stuff is maybe for like the Crockett craze in the 50s, like the Davy Crockett mm. fan merch right, right. that was so popular, but at the same time, I don't think there's, there's like a full engagement with that yet either, and how, how like, you know, the, the boomer kids <laughs> basically uh, engage with all of this, and that's fan studies. Um, so... I think that would be really cool to sort of have that more historical perspective on it, which was also the only criticism I got in the review reports. It wasn't much of a criticism. It was just someone saying, and actually it could probably reveal this was John Will saying, hey, why don't we have more historical <laughs> mm-hmm. outlooks? Which is not surprising because both of us come from like cultural history and American studies points of views. Mm-hmm. But I totally agree, like this is a gap in this book, but it's also a gap in the overall research
0: yeah and one of the it's a hard nut to crack too right i mean how do we kind of get into those um those historical practices that may not necessarily have been archived uh in the way that other aspects of disney culture were were archived um but it also opens up to new methods right like oral histories and um,
1: yeah and there's i mean there's a whole generation of like older even older baby boomers who still go to the parks who still go Mm. to events like d23 expo who you know i've met and become friends with who sit in homes full of disney memorabilia so i think this is now the moment where you should talk to these people because uh, a lot of them will will unfortunately die or or you know become maybe you know get dementia and you can't interview them anymore. Any of the usual problems you have with doing oral history. So I think actually, if you want to look into Disney fandom of the like fifties or even earlier, you need to do it now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my final question for you is, is the general softball we always throw at the end, which is, you know, what are you currently working on? And, um, you know, are you doing future research on, um, further research on Disney fan practices, or is your attention uh, currently elsewhere?
1: My attention is sort of elsewhere. I mean, I still, I will probably never stop doing Disney studies because that's just what I, you know, what people ask me about, what the media wants me to talk to. But, um, uh, and I do, I run the the Disney studies area at PCA every year. So that won't stop hopefully for a bit because we only started it last year. Um. But generally, so I'm supposed to write a second monograph and i want to write it on the idea of unmade queer television. So um, there's a few people who do unmade studies, you're one of them. (laughs) So looking at not produced, uh, you know, not produced media, mostly to television films so scripts that weren't uh, filmed for whatever reason or cuts. I, I see it as a broader thing of like a larger issue of censorship, especially when it comes to queerness. Um, and I look at it for the US and Germany. Um, I just haven't really progressed with this project for several reasons, one of them being too many other things. Um, and, and now that I finally have more time because I wrapped up so many of these other things, I've been on sickly for a whole semester, so that's been stalling that. but that, that that's the thing I' I hope to get back into and I'm excited because I get to do a lot of cool archival research at places like the Writers Guild Foundation and so on and so forth. So that's what I'm doing. Um, There's also still a volume coming out, but that's almost wrapped up. We're just waiting for reef reports and hope they're good to us uh, on um, the musical history of New York City Mm. um, that I interviewed Anthony Rapp for. So he was there and like Rent (laughs) or Star (laughs) Trek Discovery. Um, And yeah, other than that, I really should be writing the second book, but um, yeah um and i will probably start blogging about tv now to get back into writing and then mostly like my obsession of ted lasso so
0: <laughs> well we wish you all the best and uh hopefully when uh, in due time when the volume is done you'll come on and talk about it again sure so thank you so much for your time today sabrina the book is fan phenomena disney available now from intellect books This is Pete Kunze, and this has been New Books and Film on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.